Welcome into the 2QB Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith, at Greg Sauce on Twitter. This is episode 84 of the 2QB XP and the fourth installment of my new two-a-days series. Each episode in this series features two guests, typically pairing analysts from the same fantasy site, or like today's show, with some other sort of connection in the community. My goal here is to share with you a wide variety of unique takes on the QB position and quarterback draft strategy for all different types of formats, because... Yes, while 2QBs is dedicated to Superflex and 2QB leagues, we also are just trying to be your home for all things quarterback. So from guest to guest, I'm going to dive into all sorts of fantasy quarterback analysis, from 2QB to 1QB, uh, DFS to best ball, redraft to dynasty, all over the place. We're, we're going to try to hit everything with a bunch of different folks. Today's first guest is Scott Fish of Fanball and Fantasy Cares, and we'll talk about playing with scoring settings to adjust quarterback values and how to approach a multi-league tournament setting like the Scott Fishbowl. Today's second guest is Josh ADHD of Fantasy Insiders, Roto Grinders, and FantasyADHD.com. With Josh, I'll discuss interplay between a quarterback's value and the value of that quarterback's weapons, and he'll share some behind-the-scenes insights from the creation of his various apps and viz tools, like the ADP tool he put together for the SFB. Before we get to our guests, I want to remind you that the 2QBs.com 2018 Draft Guide is now available. This is a draft guide dedicated to two-quarterback fantasy leagues. Visit 2QBs.com, T-W-O-Q-B-S.com to see everything that the guide has to offer. Today, I want to specifically highlight the Draft Guide's article by Jeff Doyle about quarterback job security, where he ranks every NFL franchise according to how solidified their quarterback depth charts are. Uh, and Jeff's article is only the beginning. The guide features 221 digital pages of content from all sorts of heavy hitters from around the fantasy industry. 10% of each sale of the guide will go to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, a very good cause. To get your copy of the guide to dominate your two quarterback leagues, head over to 2QBs.com. Again, that's T-W-O-Q-B-S.com in order today. Use the coupon code SECURITY to get 10% off your order. But make sure that you click proceed to checkout before entering that coupon code. If you enter the code on the cart screen, it won't work. We're working to resolve the issue, but for now, you can't apply the coupon code security until you get to that checkout screen. So make sure you get that first before you go to add the code. Now it's time to get to our guests. Let's go. All right, I'd like to welcome Scott Fish to the program. Scott, welcome back on the show. It's good to have you again. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be on, man. I love, I love this show. Love being here. Yeah, well, um, we don't have a whole lot of time. We're trying to keep these things as, as brief and digestible as possible, so I'm just going to jump right in with you. What is the biggest quarterback evaluation takeaway that you've gained through your work on the Scott Fishbowl? Wow, you really do just jump in, don't you? I'm doing okay. it. Yeah, that's how we're doing these. <laughs> well, I'm so used to the bull rush. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the biggest evaluation, I think, is probably when I'm doing scoring, that I realize that something needs to change. We, we need to create bigger gaps in the tiers. And I know this isn't helping people who are looking for drafting advice with quarterbacks, but maybe it's helping people set up their leagues. Uh, there are ways you can, you can separate good and bad quarterbacks. And, and I think you have to start there and, and start bringing that into your leagues. And that's, that's something I'm going to strive for more and more every year with the fishbowl is to separate the quarterback tiers. And this is kind of the point of this series is to get, a different perspective from a different analyst all the time. And I love that you're talking about this from like the commissioner's point of view. So <laughs> always, so talk about the change that you made to Scott Fishbowl this year with regard to quarterback setting and what your goal with that was. Well, it's basically what I just said is it was my goal. However, the fishbowl is so um, talked about. It feels weird to say that, but it's so talked about and so written about that, I have to, and I just have to keep it somewhat simple, but also try to do what I want to do to it. Um, so basically what I did is I turned touchdowns six points and I turned intercepts, interceptions to negative four points. So they're, that's like two thirds, you know, uh, the four to six, the six to four ratio. So, um, uh, I, I found that that helps separate the tiers quite a bit. And uh, if if you're listening and you're you know willing to go a step further in your league, I would consider a quarter point for interception or an inter incompletion also a quarter point for completion. And if you want to be super bold about it, 
penalizing completions even more. That that further separates the good quarterbacks and the bad quarterbacks. J- just the six the six for a touchdown, negative four for an interception does okay, but there are other things you can do to uh, increase that. Well, you also threw in the little added bonus, or I guess it's not a bonus, it's the opposite of a bonus, <laughs> yeah, for right. pick sixes where you get an additional negative two points if those right. interceptions get returned for touchdowns by the defense. Exactly. I, I, I think to myself, if you get a game where Joe Flacco throws a touchdown, but then he also throws an interception, those should just cancel each other off. That was like, <laughs> that's just my mentality of it. You know, he, he scored one, but he also gave one up that did nothing for his team. It basically was a wash. So let's make it a wash in fantasy as well. So did you look into perhaps making, like leaving passing touchdowns at, at maybe four points or even five points, uh, maybe not the full six, and trying to balance the scoring that way? Did that ever cross your mind? I did, and it doesn't it, it doesn't create the tear gaps as well, um, as you can imagine, because four, four points for a touchdown and negative two uh, for an interception, you're getting docked half. But if it's six points and negative four, you're de- getting docked two-thirds. Uh, so uh, interceptions in a six negative four interceptions are much worse on a quarterback that's that's not very good. So I, I did test it out. It just did not create it doesn't separate the tiers uh, very well at all, to be honest. Yeah, and it makes sense. And the elite quarterbacks are the ones who tend to throw the most touchdown passes because they're good. They get into the red zone. Yeah. They throw well when they're in the red zone. And if you're trying to reward the people who want to draft Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, whoever else, then you should be rewarding those more. I guess because I think the argument against that that a lot of people would make is that, well, quarterbacks get, get too much opportunity to score like that, whereas right. like a running back or a wide receiver, their touchdown should be worth more because they – their opportunities are more limited in the first place. But I like I like what you've done with it, with the, the six per passing touchdown, negative four per interception. Do you feel like people, when they were drafting the Scott Fishbowl Leagues, reacted appropriately and valued quarterbacks appropriately? I haven't really dug into it deeply enough, but I feel like they did. Just from the outside observing the chatter, not exactly the results, but the chatter about it, it feels like they a lot of people understood what was going on with that. Uh, but I haven't dug into the data to, to make sure that's actually what happened. And, and who knows what it would say, because there are a lot of people that, you know, aren't chattering about the quarterbacks out there um, when they're doing And there's a, a lot of pe- there's 900 people playing. You know, it's a it's a small section that I'm seeing each day. What percentage of that 900 do you think maybe didn't even look at the scoring settings? Because I imagine that there are some people who had no idea that the quarterback scoring oh, was so different. Yeah. I, I would guess it would probably even be as high as a quarter. Yeah, that I, sounds about I, right. I, I would not doubt 20, 25% um, just jumped in and just just went. They they may have like looked at the scoring briefly and been like, okay, super flex, that's quarterbacks. Okay, tight end premium, that's tight ends. Um, and, and just kind of went from there. I, I, can, I can see a lot of people probably doing something like that. So let's talk a little bit of strategy now. And I want to specifically talk about the fact that the Scott Fishbowl has so many different teams playing. And we're talking about just trying to win the overall goal here. You can still win your league, and that can be rewarding. But if you're really trying to win in a huge tournament setting where you're not just competing against your own league but all these other leagues, how does that affect your strategy when you're drafting? Wow. Yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. I think that that you – really just have to shoot for upside right like if you want to win the league you're going to have to be the guy that hits on a lot of darts uh it the weird thing about sfb is to make the playoffs it's only top 50 percent you know so i don't think you need to build the floor as much as you think you might need to uh because you want to make the playoffs because once you're in the playoffs anything can happen that's you know a long-term or a long-time fantasy trope right but uh in, in SFB, because 50% make the playoffs, I, if I'm drafting, I'm just shooting for the moon if I want to win the whole thing. Um, I will say there's a long history of people advancing very far due to not just hitting on players, but due to grabbing you know that, that, uh, that one free agent that makes a difference, that, that Dak Prescott a couple of years ago or whatever. You know, that, there's a long history of that as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that one of the biggest takeaways I've had from the past couple seasons in SFB is just how important that in-season management is. 
because we draft so early in these leagues yeah. that by the time the regular season rolls around, you already want to make a bunch of changes to your roster, let alone all the other changes that naturally have to occur as the, your healthy players get injured, as you know jobs change and whatnot. I, I think that that's a, a critical point you bring up there is just focus on in-season management because that's probably where you get your, your biggest edge. Um, can you give any examples of like what you mean by shoot for upside? Like, are you trying to stack quarterbacks with receivers? Are you targeting certain types of receivers like the big play guys? Or can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I, I think that's basically exactly what it is. I, I, if you look back through the history of uh, winning teams in the fishbowl, there's a lot of strong running back play. So I, I feel like grabbing two or three running backs early that like these steady rocks of your team and hopefully one of them can break out and be that, you know, Todd Gurley last year or that Jamal Charles a couple of years ago, or, you know, something like that. You hope to be able to grab that guy and a couple others to steady your team. And then you're, you're just, you're just hitting up a bunch of dart throw wide receivers, honestly, not dart throws, but wide receivers that can explode um, and hope you hit on a couple of those. That's, that's been my MO. I've done pretty well with it. I'd say I've, I've made the championship or the final once I've made the conference finals twice, uh, out of eight years and I've, uh, won my division once. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 ha I do have a one in 11 season to my name as well, but <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. You brought it up, man. Um, let's talk quarterbacks <laughs> though. Uh, let's do it. Who is 2018's most overvalued QB? Oh man, you know, it's, there are times I think it's Jimmy G and there are times I think it's Drew Brees because Brees has found himself jumping up. I mean, if you look at his ADP in the last week or two, he's jumped up now to QB six, which I find very interesting considering how he ended the season. But I think it might be, uh, it might be Mahomes. I mean, people are absolutely in love with him. I mean, he's he's going a lot of places as as right around that 12, 13 quarterback range. And I love him, too. I love his upside. But there is a lot of risk there. Yeah, my concern with him is that the volume, the passing volume just might not be there. And he's going to supplement that to some extent with rushing ability. But if he isn't throwing as much as Alex Smith was throwing last year, th there is more risk, I think, than people right. are willing to envision. They just look at the weapons around him and assume that they're going to be this prolific passing offense i i agree that he's probably a little overvalued with that said i still took him in scott fishbowl because again right. you're chasing upside. that upside yeah, yeah you're going after <laughs> exactly what we talked about i saw you had another multi-interception day at camp today <laughs> don't 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 break my heart like that scott. i think he had three today <laughs> well just get him out of the way now alex smith probably didn't throw any last camp yeah, I think he, Alex Smith led the league in interception rate last year. Only 1% of his throws went for INTs. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, halfway through the season, he still didn't have one. It was crazy. Let's go the other way. Who's the most undervalued QB right now? Well, I'm I'm starting to get mad at this because I was drafting Andrew Luck everywhere, and he's still undervalued because if he plays 16 games, he's a like a top five quarterback, in my opinion, and it's it, you know what you know another guy that might be you know I'll I'll save that for later but I, I think it's got to be Andrew Luck right now his ADP has not climbed even even though there's been a steady drumbeat of good news it just hasn't climbed he's still sitting he was QB 16 he's now up to QB uh, looks like 12 which is a little bit of a bump that's a pretty big still, jump for a QB I think yeah especially yeah over the last uh you know few weeks he's jumped four spots i i think he'll continue to climb but at, at this moment at qb12 i'm taking him all day still yeah that's still way too low i think he definitely deserves to be in the top six or seven um so with that in mind let's assume that he eventually gets there who's the other guy you wanted to mention there is being well, pretty overvalued it, or undervalued it, it, excuse me it wasn't it wasn't even overvalued it's just i'm not even or undervalued it's just not i'm not even sure and this might go to uh your show notes the next question which is who is the toughest quarterback to evaluate in 2018 hit me who is uh, it uh for me it's jared goff because he had and i know they were against poor defenses but he had like five or six 30 point games. Like he had some, like a, a several 300 yard, two to three touchdown games last year. Just a bunch of them. But he also had some, some clunkers. He's going as QB 17 right now, 16. Um, it, that offense could be really good, but also the defense is so good. They might not need to score. They, 
they had one of their like they were a top three offensive output team last year in points per game. I I don't know that that's going to continue, but for for a quarterback like that, I could see him being QB seven this year. I could see him being QB sixteen. I I think he's probably undervalued where he's at, but he's also very tough for me to figure out. Yeah, speaking of those clunkers you were talking about, I think. My favorite stat on him is that he had, I, th- I think it was seven games last season where he threw for under 235 yards, and he made up for that with all those huge games that he played for sure. Right. But yeah. that that roller coaster ride is something that's a little scary that's this so time of year. I think QB 17 is probably a fair price for him, and he could definitely outperform that. But I think, it, yeah, I guess that's a pretty safe floor for him too. It's yeah, not like exactly. he's going to be worse. Gonna... I was going to say, we talk about a lot of guys, and this isn't a QB thing, but guys like McKinnon and McCaffrey and, and stuff like that are, are right now being drafted at their ceiling. I think Goff is being drafted about at his floor. Like, I don't see him being worse than QB 17. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, especially considering the offense and the weapons around him. Yeah. The point you make about the defense is interesting, too, because... I don't always see that as a negative for a guy. Like, no, Bl- neither do I. Not always. Blake Sometimes. Bortles is a really good example of a quarterback who was not very good, but because he's on a just a generally good team, like largely because their defense is good, he ends up with good field position, which puts him in position to score a lot of touchdowns. And yeah. like, there's value in that too. It's kind of sneaky. It props him up to some extent. Um, so maybe we're going to see the same thing from Goff. Who knows? Yeah, that very, very well could be. And once again, that just like one of the things I thought might be a negative, and I don't even know that I fully agree that it's negative. You've just talked me into it even being a positive. <laughs> so, it's possible. I might even like him even more. So I'm going to ask you to kind of turn off your, your crazy scoring settings brain for a minute yeah. and ask you in a more traditional scoring setup, what is the typical price point at which you start to consider drafting QBs? And let's start with uh, one quarterback leagues. Do you like to wait? Do you pay up for guys? Oh, I take Rogers in the first every. No, I just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the same as last year. I it's the same as it seems like every year in my in my home league. Uh, I have only drafted a quarterback, and this is uh, four keepers, fourteen rounds, so eighteen spots. I have only drafted a quarterback two out of the last six years. I just don't even care. Um, for my regular drafts, I do not draft a one quarterback draft. I do not draft a quarterback in single digit rounds. I just can't do it. I cannot do it. And this year is so deep that there's no chance you, you there's no chance you could get me to draft a quarterback in a single digit round. So how about in two quarterback? At what point do you jump in in those waters? You know, th- this is interesting because this this kind of matters where my draft position is. I. Uh, I don't do it in the first three rounds generally, um, but if it's two QB or super super flex, every once in a while I will find myself uh, like if if I'm in the first position, that four or five corner I consider one. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, uh, but that's about the earliest I would. Um, like five hundred one is probably the earliest I would, but generally we're we're talking sixth seventh round is where I like to grab mine, and then I I I'm generally the guy that grabs two pretty quick. That's been a pretty common response from the people who I've had on in this series. That that's a it's typical. You you wait a while, but then you get two or three in succession so that you can play matchups and kind of mitigate the risk that you're taking by wait by waiting. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about the worst quarterbacks you're willing to to draft as your starter. Uh, in a one quarterback league, you've already said you'll basically take anybody, and that makes sense. We're, we're generally looking to stream the position in one QB league, so let's go. Straight to two quarterback here, and as your QB one, who's the worst guy you would feel comfortable with? Well, I'm counting here: 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. I'm looking how far down the list he is because I have I have drafted Jameis Winston a lot of times, and I don't even think he's that bad. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was virtually on pace to lead the NFL in passing last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was on pace for high 4,000s, even close to 5,000 yards, uh, but he missed a few games, and he's going to miss a few games to start the season here. Uh, but if he's my starter and I got someone to cover me for those first three weeks, I'm actually I'm actually pretty okay with that. We're talking about a guy who scored a- at least one touchdown in 31 of his first 32 NFL games, and, and he scored in all but you know four or five games in his entire career. Uh I think he's got a safe, decently safe floor every game. Uh, him and I find myself with a lot of Mitchell Trubisky. 
Um, and that's just a pure upside shot right there. I don't, I don't feel super comfortable, but Winston, I feel comfortable as my QB one, assuming I can get someone for those first three weeks. Well, and that makes sense because the first three weeks of the season are the time when it's easiest to replace guys, right? There are no bye weeks. We right. know that Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be starting for him and he's not going to cost much. So you could just go that route if you want to, right. like there yeah. are ways to make up for Winston's suspension. Do you have any concerns that he, I mean, there have been reports that he might have trouble regaining that role even when he's allowed to play again. Does that concern you at all? I I mean, I suppose if Dirk Cutter feels like losing his job, that's that's <laughs> a that's something he could could do. I I don't understand why someone would maybe if he wants to quit, but uh, it's not much of a concern for me at all. Like like maybe one percent. I don't even know if it's one percent to be honest. I I've seen that out there, but for me that it just doesn't affect anything. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you. I think that's way overblown. Like Winston's the best option they have at the position and they'd be crazy not to use him when he's ready to play. And he is one of my favorite targets as well, because I think the suspension has driven his price down too far. Uh I mean in terms of like where I would rank him to like finish season end and scoring, like that's one thing. But in terms of where I would draft him, that's a different story, right? Because as we talked about, you can replace him for those first three weeks, and you have to account for that when you're picking these guys. Right. Who's the worst quarterback you would be willing to take as your QB two? Ooh, that's wow. That's really interesting. Um, I find myself. Uh, you know, this is best ball, and this is for a third QB. But um, if I, if I really had to dig down to it, I don't think I don't think guys like Tyra Taylor are that bad. You know, that bad no. of options. Uh, I think he's got a lot of weapons there, and I think he's going to hold on to that job at least for a good amount. Um, I think I'd be pretty comfortable with a guy like Tyra Taylor as my QB too. So you think he's going to hold off Baker Mayfield? But what about some of the other rookie quarterbacks out there? You know, Sam Darnold, yeah. Josh Rosen, Josh Allen. Lamar Jackson, do you expect those guys to be starting sooner rather than later? Or do you envision a similar thing where they're going to be stuck behind the entrenched starter for a little while before they get get into games? Gosh, it's it's a weird year in which any I think anything could happen. Like these these guys could easily. I think Baker actually has the toughest road for me. Um, McCown had a career year last year, and if the Jets are any bit bad, like halfway through the season, I I just feel like. I just feel like Darnold's going to get his shot. I think Sam Bradford behind that, that line is terrible. I wa I wa I was watching plays last year where they had uh, three defensive linemen take on their five man front and get through. And I'm, I'm like a five man front can't stop a three man D line. This is ridiculous. So he could get hurt and Rosen could start. Uh, the guy, obviously, everyone is most excited about, and we get to watch play this week, Lamar Jackson. I mean, I I know Flacco has only missed six games in his entire career, and that was one season a few years ago. He's like 16 games every year. And I know that, that Vegas thinks Lamar Jackson is not going to start a game this year. But, man, he is such he is such a league-winning last round pick option this year like if he does get in there he he could score some major fantasy points and be a league winner so are you drafting him very often in those last rounds because for me i find that more people are willing to pay up for that upside and that risk oh, that's associated absolutely. with it um yeah. but you, so you're not ending up with him much either yeah i no i'm i'm actually getting him a decent amount but i feel like i'm probably overpaying okay that makes sense <laughs> for for a guy that may never see my roster so who do you find yourself drafting the most often at quarterback it, it it's it's probably guys be it's probably right be, between i mean luck is definitely number 1 i'm drafting him easily the most i find him on most of my rosters cuz i cannot pass up the value he's just such a value to me but it, it we've already talked about him i mean it's winston and Trubisky i'm getting on a lot of rosters um and lamar jackson's on a ton of rosters here we've talked about basically i i decided to talk about the guys i'm drafting is what i did <laughs> surprise <laughs> yeah so is is there a guy who maybe you wish you could draft more often, like someone who you like and that you would like to have on your teams, but for whatever reason, you know, other people are just valuing him a little bit higher and you keep missing out? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. I think I think Mahomes is one of those guys just for the upside, but I think Marcus Mariota is one of those guys that I I wish I had more of. I, j- I can never seem to get him. There's always someone who loves him in my league. Uh, 
it's 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 just it's just a it's just a play I haven't been able to make very often, and I think that he has a lot of potential this year. Yep, he's my Lamar Jackson. He's the guy who I'm routinely overpaying for and, and sniping from people like you. Dang <laughs> I, it! I have a lot of Mariota. Um, here's kind of a, a silly question: Do you have a favorite backup quarterback, Scott? Maybe somebody who you think would benefit from like a depth chart shakeup or a change of scenery? Uh man, that's that's really interesting. I don't know that I do, honestly. I, I mean, it's it, it, if I did, it would probably be one of the rookies, or it could be Brissett if luck f- falls apart, right? But uh, I mean, the the easy answer for people is probably Nick Foles, right? But I I just I I think Wentz is going to be fine. I'm one of the weird ones that I think Wentz is going to be fine. So there are no real backups that I'm looking at thinking, yeah, this is this is a guy I want to target. So the point about Brissett is interesting. Are you handcuffing him at all when you draft Luck, or is that not really something you're willing to do? Yeah, I'm I, I'm not a handcuff guy in general, but I'm definitely not a quarterback handcuff guy. Uh, so no, that is that is definitely not something I'm doing or would recommend. Yeah, me neither. Um, well, I think that does it. Do you have any other thoughts on analyzing quarterbacks or draft strategy for the position that you want to impart to the listeners before we go? Not not really. I mean. I, I think that when, when I'm when I'm in season, I'm, I, I take a really close look each week at the teams that pe- that the quarterbacks are playing when they have their big weeks because it really it really matters. It's it's crazy how how matchups matter so much to quarterbacks, and it, it's been talked about forever how streaming quarterbacks is a thing. But uh, I mean, just just always keep on that knowing how good a team is at the point they play against those quarterbacks uh, to know not just when you should start the quarterback you have, but also if that team's playing a different quarterback, you you might want to take a look at, you know, acquiring that quarterback, the quarterback that's going up against a team like that. But that that's pretty, pretty, pretty common. I think. Yep. I like it. Um, last thing, say something nice about this episode's other guest, uh, Josh ADHD at fantasy ADHD on Twitter. Oh man. He's that's a that's a good dude. I I mean there's just tons of stuff you can say nice about him. I mean he made that he made that SFB app for fantasy insiders. Uh for just just did it. It, it that it's so good for SFB. It's so good for the community. It's so good for you know promoting th- promoting the not just SFB but chair the charity in general. I mean that's uh, that's wonderful. His work is so impressive. I mean his apps are so smooth, so, so slick. And he's so quick to to build that stuff and make that stuff. I I'm impressed by that because I I think you know that I've I I code behind the scenes too. Like mm-hmm. I, I do yep. a lot of development work. So guys that can put stuff like that together so well and so quickly and so like slick, <laughs> it, it's just so impressive to me. No, I I love Josh. He's he's a good dude. Yeah, me too. He's uh one of the original. 2qbs.com contributors and in addition to promoting the charity and the sfb like you said i mean he's promoting the two quarterback format as well and that's something i know you're really passionate about so am i um but yeah scott i really want to thank you for coming on um listeners you can follow scott on twitter at is it scottfish24 it is it is ken griffey jr ken griffey jr remember that folks and uh we'll be right back with josh like to welcome in Josh ADHD at this point of Fantasy Insiders and Roto Grinders, former 2QBs uh, aficionado. We miss you, but uh, you do a bunch of great stuff with with FI and Roto Grinders too, Josh. It's great to have you back on. How's it going, man? Uh, things are going great. It's it's starting to get super busy, right? It's beginning of August, and everybody's getting amped up for football season, especially with the Hall of Fame game tonight. So. I'm busy. Things are great. I'm happy to be here and talk to you again. We had a lot of fun last time. Um, I know we're not going to stretch two episodes tonight, so we'll have to find another way to talk soon after this. Yeah, that just means we need a do-over soon with the with the deep dive, and, and we'll get there. But um, let's let's jump right into to the short form here. Um, what is the biggest quarterback evaluation takeaway that you've gained f- through your work in the industry? You know, for me, it's that... I probably that very few quarterbacks in the league are receiver agnostic. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's so few guys that it doesn't matter who plays receiver around them. They play well. And it seems like, you know, the majority of the league, I would say probably 28 quarterbacks in the league 
starting quarterbacks that it depends on who their receiver set is, how well they do. And that kind of dovetails in with some of the studies that Josh Hermsmeyer has done regarding racer and pacer and how receiver production basically informs what quarterback production will be. So are there any quarterbacks that stand out to you as, I mean, like where you see their weapons and it doesn't really jive with their ADP? You know, probably right now, I, you know, you look at Eli Manning and you, you see the weaponry that he has around him and his ADP is still in the dumpster. And, you know, something kind of has to give there, you would think, based on who is playing around him and the, you know, uh, the person they brought in to coordinate the offense, coach the team, that you think that there'd be some, I guess, some recovery there for Eli Manning, but people are really out on him. So, you know, I, I think he's probably a player that benefits from having the cast around him. And I think we'll see him perform a lot better than his ADP this year because of that. Well, can we take it the other way and look at quarterbacks who might drag their receivers down? Like the, the example that comes to mind for me from last season would be like Brett Hundley when he took over for Aaron Rodgers. And I mean, we like Devontae Adams. We like the other receivers on that team to some extent. Like I'm, I'm not as big of a Jordy Nelson fan as most people at this point in his career, but you know, some people think that he's still good or whatever. And I mean, he dragged those guys down. He was not good despite having quote unquote solid receivers. Couldn't that be the case with Eli too? Or are Odell Beckham, Sterling Sharp and Evan Ingram and Saquon Barkley really just going to pick him up no matter what? Like, how do you resolve that? Like, are, are we, is it possible we're overvaluing the receivers and not taking into account Eli Manning's potential downside? I think that's absolutely the case. You know, it's a lot of times it's, you see where the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you, you're kind of onto something there with the way that all of the receivers are prized for New York versus Eli Manning. You know, we kind of, you mentioned Jordy Nelson. You know, we talk about him in Oakland. You could maybe say the same kind of thing about Oakland, except all those guys are pretty fairly valued right now. Even Amari Cooper is a fourth round pick, in some cases, a fifth round pick. Yep. You know, with Derek Carr at the helm, it's like, well, okay, maybe that that's all pretty fairly priced, but you might make an argument that Derek Carr drags an offense down. You can make an argument that Ryan Tannehill drags an offense down based on the receivers that he's had around him the past, you know, two, three, four seasons that, you know, that offense just seems to be stuck in quagmire perennially. So how do you differentiate or delineate between those two, I guess, narratives or extremes or whatever you want to call it? Like, how, how do you, when you look at a quarterback, evaluate whether or not he's going to drag his team down or he's going to be propped up by his receivers? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. And the only way I would really know to answer it is to have enough volume, uh, enough play volume with a quarterback with differing cast to make that differentiation. Otherwise, I think you're just guessing. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, and I love that you give the I don't know answer because that's something that we should be doing a lot more often when it comes to fantasy sports. Uh, Let's shift gears. I want to talk to you about your unique perspective on drafting tendencies because you've created all these, you know, various apps like the ADB ADP tools you've put together for MFL 10s for the Scott Fishbowl. How has your experience shaped your or how has that experience shaped your approach to quarterback evaluations? Like when you see the trends that go into these, you know, draft apps, uh, you know, into the data, how does that impact what you are doing in your drafts? You know, honestly, I'd say this, it doesn't affect it too much unless I'm doing a value check on a player that I like or a player that I'm fading. And I guess that's really the whole reason of having and building an ADP tool is to get that, make that assessment of the landscape and see what the crowd is doing with certain players. So what I try to do typically is I, I just I just want to see what the competition's doing. It's good to scout your competition as much as it is good to scout yourself and see what your own tendencies are. And I think if you have an idea about a quarterback or really any type of player and you check the crowd and see what the crowd is doing with that same player or similar players in that with that archetype within that regime um, it could I think it could falsely inform your process and give you a false sense of security that well maybe you know my decision's fine because everybody else is making this decision or the other way around it could be well, you know, my decision's fine because everybody else is doing something different than what I'm doing. So I think you have to be very careful with ADP data and not use it as confirmation bias. 
in that, you know, I'm, I'm contrarian, this is good, or I'm doing what everybody else is doing, so this must be a good decision. So I, how do you weed through that? I think you really just have to have a good sense of, you know, what offenses you're scouting, what players you're scouting, and be comfortable with your own decision-making process and then be able to, I, I guess, use your common sense and contrast it and compare it with what everyone else is doing and know that what you're doing is the highest probability of success. Yeah, the, the timing there is really interesting, right? It's because you could you could inform yourself with whatever other tools you use, whether it be you know stats from last year, stats from the past five years, you know uh, ADP. I mean, I, I guess maybe not. I, I get, my question here is more about: Do you try to come to an opinion on a player before you check the ADP, or does it all need to kind of be done holistically in concert with each other? Does that make sense? No, I think it, it makes total sense. And I, to me, I like to I like to go do my homework first ahead of time. I want to go through the the situation and assess what I think the player is capable of, and then cite a value to that. Like, you know, where would I draft a player that I think will score this amount of fantasy points and have this type of output? How many weeks is he going to give production to my team before I try to make any kind of assessment of what the crowd thinks of that player? And the reason I say that is if, if you do your homework first and then check it against people that you trust, I think you tend to get a better assessment of the work that you've done. And the reason it's important to assess the work that you've done is you have to refine your process as you go. And if you have a bad process, the crowd will inform you pretty quickly that your process is probably bad. And what they won't tell you necessarily is how to fix it. So I think it's good to go through the process before and at least have some ideas about how you might fix your process before you even go and check what everyone else is doing. Yeah, one of my favorite tools that you came up with for the Scott Fishbowl app was the who drafted this player portion of the app. And I mean, I probably used it maybe too much, but I really liked being able to look at a specific player and look for those people that I trusted. Like you mentioned, like analysts that I believe are smart that have good process, like and may have drafted a player before me. Um, And and that really helped solidify some of my opinions because the Scott Fishbowl is a very different animal, right? The scoring settings are very drastically different than a standard league. The roster settings are much different. And with that in mind, like, having the ability to actually see what the people you trust are doing that can go a long way towards helping maybe not inform your decision but like creating that sort of feedback loop you're talking about where you're refining your process because you're seeing the process of other people that that you believe in right yeah absolutely and you know it's you make a good point that it's 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 cool to go check what your friends are doing and see what you know how they're progressing along and you know you mentioned that Scott Fishbowl is a different animal it is and like you know we had 75 drafts and they were all different you right I mean, no no two drafts were the same none of them followed the same kind of script so while you could look and see who drafted a particular player you might be interested in you wouldn't necessarily get a good idea of whether you were making a good decision or not or whether you could trust what they were doing because Everybody was in hell, right? We're all trying to figure out how to go through this thing at the same time. And um, I think you could get a lot of false positives there. And there's a lot of gamesmanship involved there, too, I think. If, you know, if if you, if you, you know, I, you would be technically throwing away a pick if you did this. But if you took a player maybe you didn't necessarily like, if you knew that the crowd trusted your opinion and could sway ADP because of it, you know, granted, that's really nefarious and probably way outside what anybody would do, but it's possible. When you're trying to win a 900-person tournament, man, you got to go deep, right? You have to go deep, for sure. <laughs> I don't know if I would go that deep. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your Scott Fishbowl strategy. What was the team you drafted like? How did, the, how did that play out? Yeah, so I was drafting right in the middle at, at pick six. So what I knew I wanted to do first was secure – the best player I possibly could at wide receiver. And, and luckily I got Antonio Brown Nice, um, because, you know, it, as has been happening so far in 2018, everyone is drafting running back early. So obviously I, I didn't draft a running back in the first round because there were five that were taken ahead of me. I got the best wide receiver on the board, in my opinion. So I, I was happy with that. I knew that I wanted to go with stud tight ends early because of the premium they're assigned in the league with the uh, half point bonus per reception and, per first down. 
So I knew I wanted to load up at tight end early. I did that. And then at that point, I just wanted to see what the board brought to me. And more often than not, uh, it brought me a lot of value, I felt. You know, I got a lot of players, especially late, that I felt gave me a ton of upside in my league. And also, my team could crater pretty quickly. But my opinion is that this is basically a small GPP with mm-hmm. roster management, and I need to have that upside if I'm going to beat 899 other people. Which quarterbacks did you end up with? I ended up, see, I went really cheap at quarterback, and this was, part of my strategy was to wait and take guys that I felt comfortable with running the ball. So I ended up with um, Blake Bortles as my number one quarterback. Nice. And then I, then I drafted the Cleveland tandem of Tyrod Taylor and Baker Mayfield much later than that. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. So I know that, you know, in any given season, we're going to have roughly 50 starting quarterbacks in the league. And we probably drafted 36 of them. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity to grab guys off of waivers later on as people get dinged up. Yeah, and the Superflex format does afford you the possibility of only taking two quarterbacks effectively. You went for uh, the Jaguars and the Browns QBs in that scenario. And I... I like the Bortles pick in terms of the Scott Fishbowl because that defense that they have in Jacksonville probably isn't going to set Blake Bortles up with very bad field position all that often. And I, and I think that matters in terms of that pick six setting uh, that's that's in the scoring there, like where an interception in the Scott Fishbowl is worth minus four points. But if they throw, if your quarterback throws a pick six, it's actually a full negative six points. And, I mean, that's something I'm a little worried about with some of the guys I have. Like, I have Patrick Mahomes, who is already being, uh, you know, he's being lambasted in the preseason for his interception tendencies. Uh, And, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, he's just practicing and he'll iron that stuff out, of course. But, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. I love the Scott Fishbowl. It's the fact that it is like a seasonal league that's also a tournament is fascinating to me. How, How did you kind of approach that aspect of it like the 900 teams trying to win the overall did that affect your decision making because you still need to make the playoffs in the first place but you do have to shoot for some amount of upside and I imagine that's why you did wait at QB was there anything else you did to try and play into that you know tournament mentality with the Scott Fishbowl yeah I mean I I tried to take as many explosive wide receivers as I could late in the draft that I thought had a good chance to score you know, in the neighborhood of eight to 10 touchdowns in ideal conditions uh, if they got a shot. And so I'm talking about players like Jordan Matthews. I mean, no, he's already football died as of this week. So <laughs> I'll have to figure that one out. And uh, Dante Moncrief, Deshaun Jackson, Mike Wallace, Taewon Taylor. And we're talking about guys that are deep, like, you mm-hmm. know, way past the herd of, of wide receivers that normally gets drafted. And so I, I'm drafting these type of wide receivers on my team because I feel like if they hit – if three of them hit, um, then I'm going to be in the catbird seat because I loaded up at tight end and I loaded up at running back um, to counter to counteract that. I, I just felt like I had a better chance of taking late wide receivers and hitting gold than I would at running back or tight end. Well, and by drafting Moncrief, you you did that, but you also stacked with Blake Bortles, which is another way to increase your your potential upside. I really like that because if he connects on eight to ten touchdowns, then that means that Blake Bortles is throwing those eight to ten touchdowns to him most likely. Uh, let's pivot towards just kind of more standard redraft analysis. Who is 2018's most overvalued quarterback? Deshaun Watson, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think a close second to that is probably uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. And the reason I say that is, I mean, the Sean Watson, I mean, I don't know if it really needs too much explanation. I mean, the the explanation has been out there for months already that, you know, there's no way he can sustain the production that he put up in that short time last year. Yeah, let's talk about Garoppolo because Deshaun Watson has been a popular answer to this. Let's let's get another uh, let's give someone else some pub here. Yeah. So uh, for me, Jimmy Garoppolo, he's. He's a black box right now because when you look at him, you can see five different quarterbacks. You can see a great quarterback that's, you know, on the precipice of explosion in the league. You can see a quarterback that struggled in San Francisco late in the season, 
trying to get touchdowns for his team. You know, they, they kicked a lot of field goals in that offense because they just couldn't seem to seal the deal a lot of times. I saw a quarterback when I watched him play that made a lot of throws that should have been intercepted um, had they been a split second later or had they been, you know, six inches to the left. So I had some questions about variance and accuracy with him that it lead me to believe that, you know, maybe it's in the range of outcomes that he throws 16 touchdowns and 16 INTs this year and, and, and that offense struggles. So with a player like that, that I'm, that I have a lot of doubt about, I don't see a reason to draft him as quarterback eight. Yep, And that's what it is with him. It's all about price, right? It absolutely. It's always about price. Always. So who's the most undervalued QB to you right now? It could be Bortles. I think it's probably – I'll have to think about this for a second. You know, the, the quarterback I've been drafting super, super late is Joe Flacco. And, that's again, that's a price thing. It, you know, he's quarterback 30, or sometimes he's quarterback 32 if someone decides to draft Lamar Jackson ahead of him. And I understand the reasoning why. I mean, I, I know why you do not want to draft Joe Flacco. But especially for me in a best ball setting, Joe Flacco's perfect. He's perfect because he's super cheap. I get him in the last round. And the upside he provides if he plays at league average level is immense. And that's all he has to do is play as a league average quarterback this year. At a quarterback 30, it's a steal. Do you buy into the narrative that maybe Lamar Jackson is going to push him to be better this season? Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that's why all the reports you've seen out of Baltimore so far in the off season have touted Lamar Jackson. He's going to play, you know, it's just a matter of time. And I, you know, I feel like this has been a steady drumbeat to light a fire under Joe Flacco's butt. And the early camp reports on Flacco, it seemed to, to work because they talk about how good he's been, how sharp and polished he's been on the field. And maybe that's what he needed. Maybe he needed competition. Maybe he needed doubt to drive him to be better than he was before. Maybe the money wasn't enough. I don't know. Everyone has a different psychology. But for me, it's I, I do think Jackson has a good chance of playing this year. Now, you know, watching the game tonight, you see some struggles, but he's a rookie. But I think that Flacco is going to be pretty good this year, and I think it's just going to be fear that's driving him. Who's the toughest quarterback evaluation for you in 2018? Jimmy Garoppolo again. Okay. I just again, he's he's a black box, and I you know I I see a lot of upside, I see a lot of downside, and like I mentioned before, the only reason I'm off of him is the price. So where do you typically price into the quarterback position in your drafts? Let's start with one QB leagues. Um, where do you dive in? Which quarterbacks are you taking? What range of player are you looking for at the quarterback position? In a one-quarterback league, if we're talking about 12-team league here, I'm going to wait as long as possible to take a quarterback. In some cases, I may not take a quarterback at all, and if I'm allowed to, I'll just go get one off of waivers and take the best matchup and just play into stream. Now, there are some cases where it makes some sense to draft a guy if he's falling, and the kind of player I'm talking about is Jameis Winston. You know, Because of his suspension, mm-hmm. he's falling. I mean, he's falling. He's quarterback 24 or 25 right now. And granted, there's a three-game tax assessed on him when you draft him. But I think in a in a one-quarterback league, if you have a spot you can stash, you're doing yourself a huge favor to draft Jameis Winston in the very last round and just stash him. Or go pick him up off waivers the first week and stash him. So, you know, really my strategy in one-quarterback, I just wait as long as possible. I can make... Uh, I can make ham and eggs out of the guys that are sitting on waivers. Yep, that's a great answer. How about in two QB leagues or super flex leagues? Yeah, that's a different story for me. I will start drafting quarterback typically after the second tier. So when I say second tier, typically after like Matt Stafford or Phillip Rivers go off the board and we start looking at players in the Matt Ryan, uh, Marcus Mariota, and Alex Smith range, that's where I like to jump in and start taking my guys. And strangely enough, Winston is probably still right there in that range, right? He's he's below that range right now because of the tax, because of the suspension. So, you know, if, if and especially in Superflex, I mean, if you could find a way to get Winston as your QB3 later than everybody else and maybe forego a receiver or running back in the, let's say, the seventh or eighth round to take Winston, I think there's a lot of upside there that you can make up for at running back or wide receiver later in the draft. 
Yeah, I even like taking him as my QB2 and then just trying to find a QB3 who has a good opening schedule. Like, that's the perfect spot to go after maybe Tyrod Taylor or even Ryan Fitzpatrick, like his straight-up handcuff, even later in the draft to try to make up for those three games. But the early part of the season is the easiest time to replace a player. And so that I'm with you 100% on Winston. I think that he's definitely undervalued. This tax that's being imposed on him because of the suspension is... It's too steep, man. He's a good enough player. He's a high enough volume player in terms of pass attempts that I, I think people are undervaluing him for sure. Um, who's the worst quarterback you'd be okay with starting? I mean, you talked about Flacco, so I don't really know if we can go much lower than that, can we? Ryan Tannehill. We See, could I, go there. <laughs> I like Tannehill more than Flacco. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like the thing, the difference for me is that Tannehill is coming off two successive ACL tears. So we we haven't seen him play in a year and a half. Roughly. Yeah, the, the difference for me is that Tannehill's job still just feels more secure to me. Like I don't see him losing his job to any of the backups there. Where whereas Lamar Jackson very well could take over for Flacco at some point. I don't necessarily think it's the odds-on favorite thing to happen early in the season, but there is going to be that risk all year, and I, I just don't see that in Miami. Do you? No, not at all. I, I you're. You're spot on with the assessment on his job security. It's it's intact, and that's a reason to draft Ryan Tannehill this year. Yep, and I mean, and that's kind of my philosophy when it comes to quarterback drafting is is I just want guys who are secure in their role. Now, injury can always mess that up for sure, um, and sometimes we're going to be wrong. Uh, but I, I don't know, like that's that's why I think Tannehill is a little undervalued. I wouldn't say he's like the most undervalued or anything like that. I still don't think you should be paying up for Ryan Tannehill, but. I don't know. I'd still rather have him than Flacco. Um, speaking of backup quarterbacks, do you have a favorite backup quarterback, Josh? Maybe somebody who you think could benefit from a depth chart shakeup or a change of scenery? I, I mean, the, probably the popular answer right now is Teddy Bridgewater, I would assume. He seems to be the most obvious choice. He's, he's, you know, he's our new Jimmy Garoppolo, right? The four, starting quarterback caliber player that's, you know, um, loitering on a roster for all intents and purposes, waiting for somebody to come trade for him. I think that's the guy. Where do you, where do you want to see him end up? Because it's, it's, he's probably not going to be the starter there over Darnold. Like they invested the third round pick in New York on Darnold. Bridgewater is, yeah, I mean, he's only on a one year deal. Like he's going to end up somewhere else. Most likely. Where do you want to see him go? Honestly, I'd, I'd rather he stick with the jets. And it, to me, if I'm the jets, what I, what I would do is I would roll out week one with Sam Darnold as the starter and Josh McCown as the backup with Bridgewater, you know, running third string until Bridgewater's ready to go. And if Bridgewater's ready to go week one, then I make him my backup and Darnold starts. And then I let Josh McCown hold a clipboard and coach from the sidelines. Now, granted, Josh McCown's making a lot of money, but the reason Josh McCown's making a lot of money is because he's tutoring Sam Darnold right now. That's why they're paying him. And the smart thing for him to do, honestly, I think, would be to put him in Darnold's ear during the games while Darnold is playing. I like it. So which QBs do you find yourself drafting the most often across you know your various formats? I'm drafting a lot of Matt Ryan this year. I'm drafting a lot of Mitchell Trubisky, a lot of Blake Bortles. Um, and probably, oh yeah, a lot of Matt Stafford as well. Those are the guys I've been targeting most heavily. So I, I'm in kind of the same range. I'm not as high on Bortles, but I have a lot of Matt Ryan, a lot of Matt Stafford, a lot of Ben Roethlisberger. Like that kind of QB9 to QB13 or 14 range is typically where I go after my QBs, basically in all formats. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you think about Ryan. Like, Do you see him making a bit of a leap there now that they have Calvin Ridley? What are your expectations for him after you know the the first year of Steve, Steve Sarkeesian was so disappointing? I just you know I'm I'm drafting him expecting middle of the road Matt Ryan, which if I get middle of the road Matt Ryan, he's quarterback twelve, he's quarterback ten, and for quarterback fifteen sixteen price, that's great all day long. I will draft that all day long. And I, do I think he's due for some regression? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think he's due to go back to what he normally did before the 2016 season, before he had his MVP season. And that's that's kind of what you need to be thinking about when you draft these quarterbacks is not necessarily what their ceiling potential is, but, you know, what's their middle? What's their floor? And if the floor or the middle hit, are you okay with that where you're drafting that player? 
Yeah, especially because all these guys have an inherently built-in ceiling. Like any quarterback can potentially throw three touchdown passes in a given game or throw for two and rush for one. Like that happens all the time. Like we've seen Trevor Simeon be the overall QB one. We've seen Josh McCown have really usable seasons as, as recently as last year. So there's there's always going to be a ceiling with these guys. That floor that you bring up is definitely very important for sure. Which quarterback do you think wish you could draft more often who's somebody who maybe you would like to draft but for whatever reason you keep missing out like other people value him just slightly ahead of where you have him drew Brees, for sure earlier in the offseason you could get drew Brees' quarterback eight in a lot of cases and you would have to take him probably in the eighth sometimes ninth round to get him but that's that's a steal in my opinion based on what we know drew Brees can do again he's in that regime like matt Matt Ryan was where he had a down year in 2017 due to factors that were really out of his control. You know, Drew Brees, so his team was good. That's not his fault. They had the lead. That's not his fault. Well, it kind of was his fault because he's a good quarterback, but (laughs) he didn't have to throw 40 touchdowns for his team to win. And in 2018, that may not be the case. I, you know, I think we can make a good argument that Drew Brees will have to be more of his, his median self, his normal self, in order for that team to win. And we would take normal median Drew Brees all day long at quarterback eight. In your best ball drafts, are you are you ending up with Brees at all? Do you have any shares of him? Uh, yeah, I have plenty of shares of him in my best ball leagues for that very reason. If I can get him at quarterback seven or quarterback eight, uh, even if I have to forego a wide receiver running back that I really like, a lot of times I'm going ahead and taking him as my QB one because of the upside that's there and it's a bit like it's a bit like russell wilson's price last year right you know you could get wilson as qb6 qb7 last year and there was no there was no upside baked into his cost it was all downside at his cost so i see breeze a lot of the same way this year you're buying breeze at his floor and anytime you can buy a player at their floor if you already know what the floor is then at least from a production standpoint, then it really makes a lot of sense to go ahead and dive in on that player no matter what point of the draft it's in. Now, I don't know how you really feel about stacking in best ball, but if you could only stack Breeze with either Cameron Meredith or Ted Ginn Jr., who would you choose of those two receivers? I would probably choose Cameron Meredith based on what I expect he's going to play from a role perspective. So if if we're pretty sure that he's going to play that Marquez Colston, that big slot role, then I like that role in the New Orleans offense. I think Cameron Meredith will thrive in it. And obviously there's some health questions there, but I, the price that he's that he's at right now, which is around the 12th or 13th round in a lot of cases, Cameron Meredith makes a lot of sense for a stacking standpoint. And if you can get if you can get Drew Brees in the eighth round plus his wide receiver two in the hundred target range in the twelfth round, you do that every time, right? That makes like that's an easy decision. Yeah, and I mean the the thing about this question that's silly is that you don't have to choose. You could stack them both with Breeze if you really wanted to because they're both so cheap. Like that's the thing that boggles my mind. Like you talked about that connection between quarterbacks and wide receivers with Breeze, it's even more apparent. Like unlike Eli Manning, where he's being you know drastically undervalued and all of his weapons are being highly valued, Drew Breeze is fairly highly valued. But beyond Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. His weapons are dirt cheap. I don't really get it. Like We know that he's a better QB than Eli Manning, and I would say that Cameron Meredith is probably a better wide receiver than Evan Ingram or than Sterling Shepard. Like, like, how can we not connect these dots? Like, what, what's, what's the I – don't, I don't understand the disconnect. It's very strange to me. Um, before we go, do you have any other thoughts on analyzing quarterbacks or draft strategy for the position that you want to give to the listeners before we take off? Yeah, I mean, probably the simplest thing that that I could impart to anyone is never to turn your nose up in an offense and don't ignore a quarterback because he plays in a bad offense. Bad offenses score points and bad teams tend to score points if they want to at least try to win games. You know, you rarely see an offense go out anymore and put up in the neighborhood of 300 points across the season. They're typically getting closer to 400. And if teams are going to put up in the neighborhood of 350 to 400 points, then their quarterback is going to be usable more often than not. So don't don't shy away from a quarterback just because they're on a team you don't like from a production standpoint. 
Very good. Uh, last thing before we go, say something nice about this episode's other guest, Mr. Scott Fish. Scott Fish is – he's a nerd, and I really like that about him. <laughs> you just want to leave it at that? Sweet, short, simple. I like it. Hey, Josh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Listeners, if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at FantasyADHD. Check it out. And that does it for today's Two a Day. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, The 2QB Experience. Be sure to follow Scott Fish at ScottFish24 on Twitter and to follow Josh ADHD at FantasyADHD. Check out the show description for links to their work and head over to 2QBs.com to pick up your copy of our 2018 draft guide dedicated to two-quarterback fantasy football. You can follow the site on Twitter at 2QBs. You can follow me at GregSauce. Whether you're tweeting at us, emailing us at 2QBs at gmail.com, or typing out the website's URL, spell out 2QBs with letters, T-W-O-Q-B-S. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Adios.